First Kings chapter 11 on page 350. First Kings 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen." Then the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary, Hadad the Edomite, from the royal line of Edom. Earlier, when David was fighting with Edom, Joab, the commander of the army who had gone up to bury the dead, had struck down all the men in Edom. Joab and all the Israelites stayed there for six months until they had destroyed all the men in Edom. But Hadad, still only a boy, fled to Egypt with some Edomite officials who had served his father. They set out from Midian and went to Paran. Then taking men from Paran with them, they went to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave Hadad a house and land and provided him with food. Pharaoh was so pleased with Hadad that he gave him a sister of his own wife, Queen Tephanes, in marriage. The sister of Tephanes bore him a son named Genubath, whom Tephanes brought up in the royal palace. There Genubath lived with Pharaoh's own children. While he was in Egypt, Hadad heard that David rested with his fathers, and that Job, the commander of the army, was also dead. Then Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me go, so that I may return to my own country. What have you lacked here, that you want to go back to your own country? Pharaoh asked. Nothing, Hadad replied, but do let me go. And God raised up against Solomon another adversary, Rezon, son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, Hadaziah, king of Zobah. He gathered men around him and became the leader of a band of rebels when David destroyed the forces of Zobah. The rebels went to Damascus where they settled and took control. Rezon was Israel's adversary as long as Solomon lived, adding to the trouble caused by Hadad. So Rezan ruled in Aram and was hostile towards Israel. Also, Jeroboam son of Nebat rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite 
from Zeradah, and his mother was a, a widow named Zeruha. Here is the account of how he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built these supporting terraces and had filled in the gap in the wall of the city of David, his father. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the house of Joseph. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Nahiah, the prophet of Shiloh, met with him on the way wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country. Anahiah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into 12 pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take 10 pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hands and give you 10 tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Shemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in my ways, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my statutes and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose and who observed my commands and statutes. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands and give you ten tribes. I will give one tribe to his son David, so that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you, and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commands as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt, to Shishak the king, and stayed there until Solomon's death. As for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed, are they not written in the book of the Annals of Solomon? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel for 40 years. Then he rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son succeeded him as king. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great. Thank you, David, for reading that. Let me add my welcome onto John's. If you've got a Bible, please do keep it open. We're going to be spending our time looking at uh, that chapter. But as we begin our time together, let me open in prayer. Let's pray. Our great God and our Father, this evening may your word confront us. May it disturb our security. May it undermine our complacency. May it overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior so that we may delight more in your Son, Jesus Christ. Raise our affections to him this evening, we ask, as we look at this story. May our love for him grow ever more so that our love for the fleeting things of this world grow ever smaller. We ask all these things 
for his glory, for the joy of the nations. Amen. Let's play a game of Guess Who as we start this evening. You know the game Guess Who? A description, and then you have to guess who it is I'm describing. Just play it in your head, not expecting the answers shouted out. Here's this person, their home life. Two young children. He was married to a former Swedish model. Professional life, winning 14 majors from 1997 to 2008. He earned $110 million a year on endorsements alone. In April 2009, he was photographed in the Oval Office with President Obama. On October the 1st, 2009, he was the first athlete to earn $1 billion. His caddy, taking a percentage of his cuts, became the richest sports person in New Zealand. To many, this person was the greatest golfer. And of course, I'm talking about Tiger Woods. But then, on Thanksgiving, November 26, 2009, the sporting world was rocked at the news of Tiger Woods' 15 affairs. His marriage was ended, his endorsements ceased, his golf game was never the same. From such heights, he fell to such lows, seemingly out of nowhere, It came as a huge shock and a huge surprise. Perhaps if you were here last week when we looked at 1 Kings chapter 8, arguably the highest point of the whole Old Testament, we then read 1 Kings 11 and we have a similar thought. How has this happened from such heights to such lows? Turn back to chapter 10. Have a look in verse 23 to 24 where we read a description of Solomon. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience of Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. You can argue that there's never been a greater human king than King Solomon. Never. And yet his story ends which, with such tragedy. In our, our series in 1 Kings, we've been spending time looking at these first chapters of 1 Kings and seeing uh, about the life of King Solomon. Seeing how Solomon is sort of like a blueprint, a picture of Jesus to come. He isn't the finished product, but he points towards Jesus. He's a model of how Israel's king, their spiritual leader, should act. We see that he is faithful And that we see how much more faithful Jesus is. But we also see that he is flawed. If this is your first time with us looking at 1 Kings, I encourage you to check out the rest of the sermons uh, online. And there's two things in that first sermon which are really important for us this evening. The first thing is that we're going to be reminded here that as the king goes, so goes the people. That's going to be really important for us. As the king goes, so goes the people. And secondly, the big theme that runs throughout the book, if we as God's people are to experience God's blessing, we need to follow a king who will perfectly follow God's word. That's the key thing we've been seeing in all of our sermons, and we're going to see that again this evening. But before we dive into 1 Kings chapter 11, 
I want us to pause and take stock at perhaps some of the reasons why we think Solomon might not have fallen. First and foremost, Solomon, he got, he got a taste of heaven we saw last week. What do I mean by that? Well, right before his very eyes, God was fulfilling his promise to Abraham. God's people more numerous than the sand in God's place, in God's presence, in the temple, under God's rule and reign. We saw last week someone building that temple. You want somebody who's done good works while building a temple of God. That's pretty good, isn't it? He built a temple and through him, God came to dwell amongst his people. Nothing seen like it since the Garden of Eden. He was all about world mission. We saw last week how the temple points towards God's mission to the nations. And chapters 9 and 10, which we don't have time to look at, we read of Solomon's immense wealth and wisdom and the nations coming to Jerusalem. The great picture of that, the queen of Sheba, it's a fulfillment of what Solomon prayed about. And in these chapters, we see that the nation was at peace with everyone around them. The people all had enough and they were happy. If you want a blessed life, that was it. And yet even those things weren't enough to save Solomon. Think even broader, he comes from good stock, doesn't he? His dad, King David, the man after God's own heart. Imagine family worship in his house. He literally wrote the book on family worship. He wrote the songbook, the Psalms. David was a man who loved the Lord until the end. But Solomon's spiritual stock, if you will, wasn't enough to save him. Or what about his spiritual gifts? He was an extremely gifted man. We saw his wisdom in chapters 3 and 4 and how he structured the country We saw him building a temple last week. He was supremely gifted. And yet that wasn't enough. He had great spiritual experiences. Twice we read he met with God and that wasn't enough to save him. Perhaps we can think of great spiritual experiences. Perhaps that that summer camp high after we've been away or after a conference. Think of those sweet times of fellowship. But those aren't enough to save Solomon, to save us. See, all of this to say one thing. Solomon messed up, and so might we. I wanted to get that out right at the start, because that's not our primary application in the passage, although it is a big one. I don't want us to end on this note, but it's vitally important for us to realize it. In this passage, we're going to see two things, Fraser, if you can get the slide up. First off, a divided heart, and then the divine promise. Let's look at Solomon's divided heart. Why not keep one finger in 1 Kings 11 and turn back to 1 Kings chapter 3. On page 338, and look at verse 3. Solomon showed his love for the Lord. By walking according to the statutes of his father, David. Solomon showed his love for the Lord. Turn back to chapter 11, verse 4. 
as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Now, David was a sinner. We, we know that. He sinned big time with the adultery of Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah. But David was a repentant man. He was convicted of sin and he repented. That's a sign of someone whose heart is for the Lord's, that when they sin, they're convicted and repent. But Solomon, he showed no signs of repentance. Notice that repeating word in verse 4. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, and his heart as the heart of David his father had been. See, with Solomon, it's an issue of the heart. Let's dig a bit more. Let's see what else it says about it. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. Now, why is that important? Well, because of this reason. I don't doubt that Solomon said he worshipped the Lord. That he did the sacrifices, that he did the right things, so to speak. The problem is that's not all he did. He worshipped the Lord and other gods. Now we know that you can't really worship the Lord and, and other gods. See, one of the things that was unique about the Lord then and now is that his claim is he's the only God. You don't need to turn to other things because he is the only God. And back in chapter 8, we saw that last week. And yet now we read in these opening verses that this God who somehow fills the universe but dwells in this house, this great God, has to share his honor, share his worship. You can almost imagine how that might have been spun at the time, can't you? So Solomon, he hasn't left the Lord. He's simply having multi-faith services. And just look at who the Lord is sharing his worship with. Ashtaroth, the pagan god of sex and fertility whose practices included all sorts of sexual abuse and perversion. Molech, the pagan god who demanded child sacrifices so that the family might have financial prosperity. See, when Solomon lived in obedience with the word of the Lord, the people were safe, they were happy. Now the lives of women and children are in grave danger because King Solomon, the spiritual leader of the people, did not wholly love the Lord. And don't mishear me, these, these people here doing these things, they aren't, they aren't, if you will, Old Testament Christians struggling in sin. People who cry out, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's not these people here. These are people rejecting the Lord. But make no mistake, these idols were first built in Solomon's heart before they were built in the high places. Because that's what they are. They are simply projections of the heart's desire. Sexual gratification is essential for life. Financial prosperity above the lives of children. Things that began as good gifts from God. 
but things that have become worshipped and destroyed countless lives throughout the ages. See, these, these desires, these sins, they, they start off small. They're like as some preachers once described it as baby snakes. Apologize if you're into snakes and that's your thing. I am not. But they describe these sins like baby snakes. Baby snakes you have to kill now before they grow into big snakes and kill you. See, if we aren't addressing sin in our life, the same sins which cause these people to do these things, then it's addressing us. As a Puritan John Owen famously said, be killing sin before sin be killing you. But perhaps you're here and you aren't a Christian. And you're struggling to hear all of this. Well, you're in very good company this evening. See, all of us are are sinners. All of us are messed up. All of us have sinned sexually. All of us have craved the love of money and financial prosperity. But soon we can take heart. Because we'll see in our passage the great saviour to come, the true and better Solomon. Because that is what the people of Israel needed. And that is who we need. See, it's important to see how all this came about. Solomon didn't just wake up in chapter 11, apostate, directly opposing the Lord. That is a terrifying thought. Imagine it. If that happened, it would mean that one day you or I could go to bed loving the Lord one night and then wake up apostate. But that never happens, ever Instead of what we see in Solomon, it's years of gradual decline, years of a divided heart. See, long before Solomon lusted after these things, he stopped loving the Lord. Look back again to chapter 3 of 1 Kings and look at verse 1. Solomon's kingdom is firmly established, we read in the line above, and what's the first thing said about him? Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. It's a baby snake. It's also something forbidden in Deuteronomy 17, God's law, the thing he, he promised to follow. Actually does all the things forbidden in that section. Let me read it for us, it's in Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 to 17, which says, The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. We see in Solomon's life, he, he did all of these things. In fact, if I were to carry on reading chapter 3, verse 3, read before, it says this, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. Going to these high places were all gods to be worshipped at the start of his reign. It's a baby snake. See, these small seeds of decline we see peppered throughout these chapters, left unchecked. Now, in chapter 11, well, they flower into disaster and downfall. 
baby snakes now all grown up and eating salmon live. All while he was going through the religious motions, going through the routines, and his heart was left completely untouched. See, in double-minded situations, when our hearts aren't fully for the Lord, it's our allegiance to God that will fail every time. As Jesus said, the one who's not with me, it's not that they're indifferent. The one who's not with me is against me. Or listen to the words of Solomon in Proverbs 4, where he says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Solomon's life is tragically an example of when this doesn't happen. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Don't build those idols in your heart. Not now, not ever. Let's go back to 11 verse 4. A few weeks ago, Sinclair mentioned an analogy I thought was great about uh, peppermints. Do you remember that one? It's about how sometimes we go through Bible verses and we're, we're chomping through that. We've been doing a lot of that. Tonight we're going to suck a bit on chapter 11 verse 4. Let's, anyway, that's irrelevant. Let's go back to verse 4 of chapter 11 and notice how Solomon is described here. As Solomon grew old. Let me address the students here, the teenagers here, the kids here. Listen up to this. Being a Christian at school, it's really hard. Being a Christian at uni, it's really hard. But don't be fooled into thinking those years are the hard ones for following Jesus. Following Jesus is always going to be hard. It just looks different at different stages of life. Keep going. Keep following Jesus. And as you do, keep praying for older people than you as well. So I have every confidence that the elderly here pray for you often. Pray for them also. That likewise they too may follow the Lord every day. Because Satan doesn't retire when we retire. Remember, spiritual decline, it's, it's gradual. So guard your heart. Don't go after the gods of, of comfort, of worshipping family. If you do go on to marry, be wise. Our marriages, humanly speaking, are the most intimate relationships, and they have a primary impact on our relationship with God. Think, I must guard my walk with Christ for the sake of my spouse. Marry someone who will spur you on to grow in love and knowledge of the Lord. See, that's why the Israelites went to marry foreign women. It wasn't a race thing, it was a religious thing. Because as we see with Solomon, gradually drip by drip by drip, turned his heart from the Lord. Wherever our, our weaknesses are, wherever those baby snakes might be, 
be aware they're there and seek to kill them. But weakness is not the issue. It's unrepentant sin that's the issue in Solomon's life. Heed the warning of Solomon and don't lose your love for the Lord. But we aren't Solomon, though, are we? We aren't a king. But remember, as goes the king, so goes the people. Solomon's heart was divided. It led to his people's heart being divided, worshipping other gods. And because Solomon's heart was divided, look at verses 9 to 11 of chapter 11. We see here the promise that the kingdom will also be divided. That's what we see in verses 14 to 33. We see here God's judgment, it's just as he promised it would be. God will divide the kingdom, give ten tribes to one of Solomon's servants called Jeroboam. But here we see as the kingdom crumbles, as it's about to break apart, the vultures gather. And some of the old enemies of God's people raise their heads. Hadad, the Edomite, Rezon, the son of Eliada. And notice it's Pharaoh they go and see. So much that marriage line Solomon had, which is no use to him now. See, from this point on, never again will the kingdom politically be won. And in the next chapter, we see that fracturing Jeroboam reigning in the north, Solomon's son Rehoboam reigning in the south. And that is the amazing thing here. For here among Solomon's divided heart, when Solomon deserved destruction, we see a glimmer of hope. We see that God is faithful to his promise to David. Let me read from verse 34 again. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose and who observed my commands and statutes. I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give you ten tribes. I'll give one tribe to his son so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commands as David, my servant, did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. See, what we see here is the divine promise. I love um, a good box set. Perhaps you do as well, that, that love-hate relationship when you're watching an episode of something and there's a huge surprise at the end and you're like, what? I did not see that coming. Then you go to bed at an inappropriate time and you think more about it and you realize that actually there's been, there's been hints of that all the way through the series. See, that's what we've got going on here. Why isn't God taking everything away? Well, because that isn't the way God works. I'm a fan of the series The Good Place on Netflix, uh, where there's this architect who's trying to create the perfect afterlife. 
he keeps getting it wrong and he has to press the restart button time and time again. If you haven't seen that, that is a, too late. There's a spoiler in there. I'm sorry for that. You see, God, he's the grand architect. But he isn't a grand architect whose plan hasn't worked and smashes it and starts again. The fall in Genesis 3, the the arrogance of Babel, the slavery in Egypt, the grumbling in the wilderness. At no point does God press reset. He stays faithful to his word, faithful to his promises. God's judgment doesn't make void his promises. And yet how do the two come together? How will God enact his judgment and yet retain a king on the throne in Jerusalem from the line of David. Well, he does it by enacting judgment and keeping a remnant for himself. Not because they're any better. They weren't. But because God is faithful to his word. Not one word has failed of all of God's good promises. Now just picture that you are the original reader of this. You are in Babylon. Jerusalem has fallen. You are reading this chapter. Would would this ending not cause you to rejoice? Yes, we're afflicted, but we're not abandoned. God hasn't forgotten his promise. Solomon, he doesn't deserve this ending. He doesn't deserve somebody from his line on the throne. He didn't fulfill his duty. He failed. But God is faithful to his promise. So he will judge, but he will also provide a king. Why is that important? Remember the theme of a book. If we as God's people are to experience God's blessing, we need to follow a king who will perfectly follow God's words. And that is exactly what we have in Jesus. He is the true and final king of God's people. He fully obeyed God's words. He, his heart was completely undivided. Think of it like this, where, where Solomon went after other things. Jesus resolutely set his face for Jerusalem to die on a cross. Where Solomon lived a life of extravagant luxury, Jesus didn't even have a bed to call his own. Where Solomon was tempted, Jesus stayed faithful in face of God's wrath. Where Solomon sat on his throne with a crown of gold, Jesus hung on a cross with a crown of thorns. Where Solomon struggled to do the hard thing for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Where Solomon was dead and buried, Jesus was crucified and three days later rose from the dead. When Solomon was compromised and faithless. Jesus was faithful to the end. This is the king we have in Jesus, the one whose heart was never divided. And in King Jesus, we are blessed by God because he fully obeyed the word of God. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, we are blessed in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Because as goes the king, so goes the people. Because King Jesus reigns now in heaven, so too am I seated at the right hand of the Father. Because King Jesus is now in the presence of the Father, so too I can approach him with boldness. Because King Jesus ushered in the new creation, so too I get to enjoy that now. 
Because King Jesus loved God the Father with all his heart, so too I can have confidence that he will hold me fast. For even when I am faithless, he is faithful. Because King Jesus died for me, he will not let me go. His love for me will never fail. Despite the fact that I sin and I stumble, I am accepted in Christ. Because King Jesus is in heaven, I can say with the reformer Martin Luther, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Because as goes the king, so goes the people. This passage, I think, it should, should cause us to repent. But it should also spur us on. Because in Jesus, all of God's promises are yes and amen. In him are all the blessings of God. Because we are united to the true and final king. You are in him, he is in you. Where he is, there we are also. And that means that we cannot be lost. Because he has never failed and he never will fail because he is faithful to his divine promise. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, as we finish our time looking at this first section of 1 Kings, looking at the life of your people and King Solomon and seeing how you are the the true and final king of God's people. We thank you for your grace towards us. Thank you for your patience with us. Please forgive us of our sin, we ask, and help us to follow you. Give us the strength to do so, we ask. Lord Jesus, because you are our king, we worship you. We praise you, for your name is the name above every name. We rejoice that through our union with you, somehow now we are seated with you, and we can approach our Father with confidence in your name. What a name it is, the name of Jesus. It's in your name we ask these things. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final song together, which praises King Jesus for the great spiritual blessings that we have in him. Let's stand and sing our last song, There Is a Higher Throne. And then please remain standing for our benediction afterwards.